0: Hello. As we continue our celebration of Black History Month, I want to take you back, way back, to the prehistory of New Orleans music. What's that you say? Well, in this fascinating Afropop episode, producer Ned Sublette, author of The World That Made New Orleans, explores this era of music in New Orleans, before recordings were widely made there. So, Let's cure up our imaginations, and away we go! Hello, Georges Colinet with you. Well, kind of. Today I've got to catch a plane for Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. So for this episode of Afropop Worldwide Hip Deep, I'm entrusting my warm chair and my hot microphone to guest host,
1: Ned Sublet. Hello, Ned. you? Hello, George. Mighty glad to be here for today's Afropop Worldwide Hip Deep Excursion. The prehistory of New Orleans music. Treasures from the Hogan Jazz Archive at Tulane University in New Orleans. What do you mean, prehistory? Like dinosaurs? No. I say that everything before the invention of recording was basically prehistory, because we didn't have a way to write sound, so we don't know what the music sounded like. And beyond that... The prehistoric period in music lasted decades past the arrival of recording.
0: Yeah, because in some cases it took years for record companies to get around to doing cool stuff. Exactly.
1: So for example, most of the music that was going on in New Orleans in the 1920s wasn't recorded. They were recording jazz in Chicago and in New York, but not much in the home of jazz. We're gonna see what we can find out about what was going on using the recordings we do have and oral histories from the Hogan Jazz Archive. The Hogan was founded in 1958 as an oral history project, ultimately with a list of some 660 informants, voices whose memories date back to the early days of recording and beyond. With guest scholars Bruce Rayburn and Lynn Abbott. Ned,
0: it's been great. You're looking sharp these days. But I've got to catch my plane.
1: Goodbye, George, and thank you. I'll keep your chair warm, I promise, and I'll guard your Afro-Pop Worldwide microphone with my very life. Goodbye! Now, where was I? Oh, yes. Hello, Ned Sublet with you on Afropop Worldwide Hip Deep. Let's kick it off with some music the way we do. Here's a recording from 1905 by the legendary cornetist who was probably the first band leader to play what we could definitively call jazz, though that word was not yet in use to refer to music. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Buddy Bolden. Dude, where's the track? That's Mike Jones, our engineer. Sorry about that, Mike. Actually, I'm just trying to dramatize that there is no recording of Buddy Bolden. If he was ever recorded, nothing has survived. We know he played loud. We know he was put away into an insane asylum at the height of his career. We know a few things about him, but we don't know how he sounded or even the exact location of his grave at Holt Cemetery in New Orleans. I asked my pal Bruce Rayburn about Buddy Bolden. Bruce is curator of the Hogan Jazz Archive and author of New Orleans Style and the Writing of American Jazz History.
2: Bruce? Bolden's a symbolic figure. What Bolden represented to a lot of Creole musicians particularly was the impact of changing fashion and changing tastes in the market. and. Bolden obviously is pulling on the blues and there's a school of thought that basically says, well, you know, we know he's a blues player. We're just not sure if he's a jazz guy or not. So it's an open question whether Bolden was playing jazz or proto jazz. But we do know that he was playing for the low end of the market, that he was playing for black and Creole people, for the pimps, for the prostitutes, for the working class blue collar population that lived in Central City. Lower French Quarter, Treme area, the good time people. And that he was performing a music that was exciting and sexualized. And, of course, living a lifestyle that had the same adjectives applied to it. So what we're looking at with Bolden is the desire of young people for something that goes with the way they want to live. And instead of doing waltzes and shardishes and mazurkas, which Bolden also performed before midnight, The young people, the night people that Danny Barker talks about who want to go till 6 a.m., they want slow drags and shags and belly rubs. Those are the dances they do. Bolden heard what they had to say, and he supplied that demand. And, of course, what happened was any trained musician who wanted to keep working had to follow in his wake as the market shifted in that direction.
1: So Bolden came in playing low-down blues and changed the style that other musicians then had to play. But we don't really know how he sounded. In 1959, musician Peter Bocage remembered that jazz came from what he called the routine men.
3: Now, you take a lot of those fellas, uh, they were routine players, and that's where jazz came from, you understand? Mm-hmm. That's where jazz came from, from the routine men, you understand? The men that didn't know nothing about music. They just made, uh, made up their own ideas. They didn't know nothing about phrasing, nothing in music. No, no,
1: no thoughts at all about music. Just go ahead and play, that's all, you understand? Mm-hmm. That's how jazz come about. Bocage remembered that Buddy Bolden couldn't read music, not even a note as big as this house is how he put it, and relied on what he called improvision. You see, uh, Bolden was a fellow, he didn't know a note as big as this house, you understand what I mean?
3: And uh, whatever they played, they they caught or made up, you see? They made their own music, and they played it their own way, you understand? So that's where jazz started, you understand? Just through the feeling of the man, you understand? Just uh, his improvisation, you see?
1: Bocage and his brother Charlie Bocage both worked in Armand Piron's New Orleans Orchestra. But the two brothers had very different styles.
2: Their father was a boat builder and repair man. They are Creoles of mixed heritage, European and, and African heritage. And the dad had only enough money to get musical instruction for one of his sons. So the eldest son, Peter, was taught how to read music and became a musicianer, as Sidney Bechet would say. In other words, someone who was fully literate, could do theory, could do some arranging. But his brothers were also musicians. Pete was a violinist who became a cornet player with Piron. And his brother Charlie didn't get that kind of musical training and was basically what would be called a faker, but he had an excellent ear and he had perfect pitch. And he becomes the banjo player in Piron's band and also a vocalist. You've got two brothers working in the same band with different skill levels coming out of the same family, but the economic circumstances of the dead dictated who would get the training and who didn't. The fact is, it's that merging of different skill levels that makes a band like Piron so interesting because most New Orleans bands in this period and earlier had at least one player who was fully musically literate, at least one faker who could not read a note as big as a house, as Peter Bocage said of Bolden, but could play hot.
1: Very little recording was done of New Orleans bands in the 1920s, but among the earliest was Armand Piron's band, Bruce Rayburn.
2: Armand Piron is a Creole violinist who comes from an illustrious musical family. He's someone who has significant training in Eurocentric music, but like so many other people, he has to conform to the changes in the market that Bolden symbolizes. And so he puts together a jazz band in the late teens. And is among the earliest New Orleans band leaders to record, in, uh, originally in New York in 1923. Piron is often uh, characterized as the leader of a society band. Uh, I think Rudy Blesch said they had no jazz connection whatsoever. But in his advertisements, he put the band forward as one of the foremost jazz bands in the nation. And what's interesting to do is to take the oral history and compare it to the recordings. If you judge the Pierone band strictly by the recordings they made 1923 and 24, they are kind of polite and are a society band. They were a big hit with, you know, debutante parties and whatnot for uh, rich people in New Orleans. But if you go into the oral histories with some of the band members like Charlie Bocage and his brother Pete, What you find is when they played in Treme, they're playing blues for black audiences. And so this was a band that didn't record its get-down music, but in the field when it was hired to do a gig, they were playing a lot of low-down blues and they knew what to do with that material. Uh, What you hear on the recordings, in other words, doesn't tell the whole story of what this band was actually doing in the 1920s.
1: So here's Armand Piron's New Orleans Orchestra with Bouncing Around, recorded in 1923, before the innovation of electrical recording. In those days, instead of a microphone, recordings were made with a more sensitive acoustic horn that couldn't handle big bass waveforms, so bass drums weren't allowed into the studio in those days. But figure that on a gig, the band might have had a fatter bottom. around, that's Armand Piron's New Orleans Orchestra from 1923. Ned Sublett with you on Afropop Worldwide Hip Deep, filling in for Georges Colonnais, who's in Ethiopia this week. Today, the prehistory of New Orleans music, treasures from the Hogan Jazz Archive. <laughs> Stylistic boundaries are porous. A tune might be done in very different styles. We're gonna trace now how one song transformed. It's called Sing On. We'll hear it first in its original acapella sacred song version, then adapted into a hot jazz number by the Sam Morgan Band, and finally, how it worked its way into the brass band repertoire at street parades. To do that, let's welcome Lynn Abbott, assistant curator of the Hogan. Lynn has written two books together with Doug Seroff that I highly recommend and which are beautifully illustrated. One is called Out of Sight, which combs through the African-American press of the late 1880s and early 1890s for information about music. And the other, Ragged But Right, tells the story of black traveling musicians in the late 19th, early 20th century. Lynn's been studying African-American a cappella music for years. I believe he was the first scholar to insist that barbershop quartet singing began in black barbershops. I asked him, Does gospel quartet singing come out of barbershop singing, or is it the other way around? Or do we know? It's all
4: mixed up, but I know the jazz singers like Louis Armstrong say um, everything they have came from church, and then some of the early uh, quartet singers who were in the church say it came from the barbershop. So if you listen to the earliest recordings, you're in the barbershop. And those early guys will say, well, it all came from cornfield singing. And that is a resonant phrase. It seems to carry the weight of slavery. It just takes it right back to slavery time. It's a euphemism for we sang in slavery.
1: What can you tell us about this tune, Sing On?
4: Sing On is a, a regional phenomenon. It was only recorded here. They can't find recordings of this song elsewhere. It doesn't seem to be a very old song. The earliest printed reference I've seen is from 1918. This recording's from 24, 1924, three years before Morgan recorded it. It's a wonderful recording. You'll you'll hear it and you can judge for yourself. I think this thing speaks volumes. It's got a female vocalist, like a platform singer, a church house prima donna, you might call her. She was the choir leader at St. John's Fourth Baptist Church. And she organized a community outreach choir, people from various Baptist and Methodist churches in the city. And this quintet the, called the, on the record the Valentin Choral Club Quintet. The older people in New Orleans remembered it as the volunteer rather than the Valentin. And I think that's part of, if you listen to New Orleansies, you might see that the record company misunderstood so it's Alice Salsby, the choir leader, singing the lead, and then you hear this male barbershop quartet behind her. It's backwards looking, but it's at the same time, it's looking right in the eyes of Sam Morgan. This is the uh, earliest commercial recording to come out of the New Orleans black religious community.
5: you on the free, And the It will to you want your tears And where. the way There's a sense to
1: Started in 1927, that's Sam Morgan's band on Afropop Worldwide Hip Deep with Sing On. That spiritual tune wasn't in their repertoire and it wasn't Sam Morgan's idea to play it. Bruce Rayburn.
2: Sing On is a spiritual and originally something they would not have played in live performance with a dance beat. But the A&R man for Columbia more or less insisted that they had to do it that way when they recorded it. And Sing On enters the repertoire as a piece of hot dance music from that point on. This was
1: before Louis Armstrong popularized when the Saints go marching in. No jazz band had recorded hymns before the Sam Morgan Band did it. The Morgan Band had three brothers in it, Sam, Isaiah or Ike, and Andrew Morgan. Here's what Ike Morgan recalled when William Russell interviewed him in 1958, remembering that they had to play waltzes and shottishes.
6: We played everything. We played waltzes. We had some place we played, we had to play shottishes. They used to dance them for prizes. Now these little youngsters, they have to sit on. The guys used to set a glass of water right up on their head and they dance and don't waste a draft. They just turn around and all the way around right and left then we play waltzes like two waltzes we play two blues we play mostly jazz numbers well we, we play the blues around about 12 o'clock well we look for the fight then you why understand why do the blues do that i never could figure that out I'm not sure. i don't know the the, the way they're playing the blues now, they, they're jumping them, and it just seems like it makes the people feel frigates so, or good. You understand what I mean? But the blues that we used to play, like them slow drag blues, you hear the people scream when we start start to play. Well, then the guys are start to fight. I guess that might wake some nerve or something, I don't know. What about the women? It must have affected
1: them too, huh? It so. so this song Sing On, which began as a spiritual number, found itself being played among the sinners. We're gonna hear the Eureka brass band's version of Sing On in just a moment, but I want to point out the importance of the recording that we're about to hear. Brass band music has been central to public life in New Orleans since back in the 19th century, but it took until 1951 for a working brass band to be recorded. Bruce.
2: Even though brass band recordings were made in the mid-1940s, A functioning New Orleans brass band that was working the market, a contemporaneous brass band, was not recorded until 1951 by a couple of Harvard students who were playing hooky and came down to New Orleans and sort of blew off school and decided that uh, they wanted to document New Orleans music instead, Alden Ashforth and David Wyckoff. And those Eureka recordings, uh, you know, put us in touch with something that was going on for the better part of the 20th century, at least.
1: And what was the regular market that the Eureka Brass Band worked?
2: Well, up until Preservation Hall in 1961, they're playing for the needs of the communities of Treme, Central City, Seventh Ward. Uh, They're playing for benevolent associations. They're playing for church dedications. They're playing for uh, social aid and pleasure clubs. In other words, they're providing music in the street for things that go with the lifestyle of the New Orleans population. And again, the sort of uh, lower end, the working people of New Orleans, who who will take over the street with a second line and enjoy themselves that way because that's how they cope with some of the perennial problems they had to deal with. Racism, poverty, crime, lack of opportunity. In New Orleans, you learn to live on the cheap, but you live well when you have these kind of cultural activities. And so what Preservation Hall ultimately did was bring uh, tourists into this market. But uh, prior to 1961, New Orleans Brass Bands played for New Orleans people and that was pretty much it.
1: Recorded in 1951, here's the Eureka Brass Band's version of Sing On. 1951, the Eureka Brass Band on Afro-pop Worldwide, Hip Deep. And if you go to the website, you can find nifty pictures of some of these artists, some discographic information, and the full transcript of my interviews with Bruce Rayburn and Lynn Abbott, who know so much more about the fascinating world of New Orleans music than we can possibly fit in a single episode. Treasures from the Hogan could be a whole series. And if you read the full interviews on our website, you'll see what I'm talking about. www.afropop.org, and I do mean org. Don't go away. More early New Orleans to come. Filling in for Georges Colonnais, I'm Ned Sublett. You're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRX. New Orleans, like the rest of the South, was segregated until the 1960s, which is to say it was a white supremacist society. But the evidence suggests that in those days, black musicians and white musicians played together whenever they could. As for example, in this 1929 recording we're about to hear by the Jones and Collins Astoria Hot Eight. Bruce
2: The Jones and Collins Astoria Hot Eight basically worked at a hotel on South Rampart Street called the Astoria when Louis Armstrong returned to New Orleans in 1931 to get out of Chicago fast, one step ahead of the mob, and did his gig at Suburban Gardens. He was staying at the Astoria. This, in a way, is one of the bookends for New Orleans jazz recordings in the 1920s because it's the last recording. It's made November 1929. It's really the last recording made in this period. It's symptomatic of the change that had occurred over the course of the decade. But also interesting is the presence of a clarinetist named Sidney Aroden, best known perhaps as the composer of Lazy River with Hoagy Carmichael, but also a white clarinetist from West Wego on the West Bank who had worked surreptitiously with Lee Collins on Decatur Street throughout the 1920s. In other words, a racially mixed band playing in a segregated city below the radar. And apparently, Lee Collins, who was the leader uh, and the person in charge of this recording session, did not have as much faith in their clarinet player, uh, who they called Wiggles, as he would have liked. And so he recruited Aroden, who he knew well, to come in and do the session, which was held at the Italian Hall on Esplanade Avenue, which was basically a site of the preservation of Sicilian heritage in New Orleans, in which... A racially mixed recording session took place with Jones Collins' Historia Hot Eight with Sidney Aroden on clarinet. Like the Jelly Roll Martin recording session from July 1923 with New Orleans Rhythm Kings in Richmond, Indiana, which was, you know, a clan state at the time, there were certain risks involved in having a racially mixed recording session. However, one of the things that we learned from this session is that these musicians were willing to take the risks in order to play with the people they wanted to play with. And for them, they all spoke the same musical language. So Sid Arredon, even though he was white in segregated New Orleans, could hook up with Jones and Collins' story, of Hot Eight, and sound good the same way that Morton could with the New Orleans Rhythm Kings in 1923. And one of the Messages that, that I take from this is that there was a common musical language, loosely referred to as jazz or ragtime, that New Orleans musicians in general shared over the course of the 1920s. Whether you were Creole, African American, or white, Sicilian, Jewish, whatever, you spoke the same musical language if you came from New Orleans.
1: Now, those old tourist style Dixieland bands you may have heard that are supposedly representing for New Orleans music never have saxophones in them, right? But the saxophone came into New Orleans in a big way in 1884 when the 8th Regiment Mexican Cavalry Band conquered the hearts of New Orleanians. Bruce Rayburn.
2: Certainly, Encarnacion Payens, Mexican military band that came in for the World's Cotton and Industrial Exposition 1884-85 in New Orleans, brought in a number of saxophonists and some of them stayed. It was a guy named Florencio Ramos, for example, that ended up playing with the Fishbein-Williams syncopators, which gives you a little insight into the ethnic diversity of some New Orleans jazz bands. So saxophones throughout the 1920s, they are present in some of the most popular New Orleans bands. So what's up with the saxophobia? Bruce
1: traces it back to a recording date in 1945 when musicologist Bill Russell got together with Bunk Johnson, an old school trumpet player whose recollections were sometimes misleading
2: or Bunk. Basically what he did was get together with Bunk and say, Let's put something together in the studio that sounds like the brass bands you remember from the early part of the century. And so they recruited all the musicians he had been working with already and recording with from 1942 on. And uh, they went in the studio and Bunk said, no saxophones. Well, unfortunately, in the 1940s, the bands that were working the territory at the time pretty much all included saxophones. And so the idea that Bunk Johnson implanted in Bill Russell's mind, which is that you don't put saxophones in the band because it spoils the traditional New Orleans front line of cornet or trumpet, clarinet and trombone, is dead wrong. Uh, New Orleans guys like to have that axe available, and they knew what to do with it.
1: Here's Jones and Collins' Hot 8 with Sidney Aridon on clarinet. And check out the saxophone in this tune. This is Tip Easy Blues. 1929, Jones and Collins Astoria Hot Eight. More to come, don't go away. Ridgely co-led a band with Oscar Papa Celestan that played in the notorious vice district of Storyville at the Tuxedo Dance Hall. So they called themselves the Tuxedo Jazz Band. Ridgely also had a pressing shop in a shoe black stand uptown where he met a man named Sim Black who had an idea for how Ridgely's band could make more money.
3: I got to know a white gentleman by the name of Sim Black. He was scoutmaster of Boy Scout troop 13. And he used to visit our band quarters pretty regular. So one day he came in and he said originally, he said, I have a suggestion for you. He said, something I think will improve the band. And he said, I was thinking that if you all would get black tuxedo suit, derby hat, white shirts, said, and I think it would help the band a great deal.
1: Wear tuxedos. It was about time for the debutante season. That was just
3: about the time for the debutante season to open. And that that time, the late Henry Zeno was playing drums for me, and he taken up on him to go out to find a tuxedo suit. We find him at the tailor shop, and it cost us $15 a piece. And from then on, our band,
1: just went on like a blaze of fire. So the tuxedos cost the musicians $15 a piece. Bruce Rayburn.
2: Based on Ridgely's oral history, we note that they were making about $1.50 a night plus tips in the tuxedo dance hall in 1915. By 1925, all the sidemen are making $25 a night, which is considerably above what would have been the standard union wage at the time. And so the sort of social acceptance of jazz is um, through the the appearance of the musicians and their conduct because Ridgely talks about no drinking, no swearing, no spitting on the bandstand when you're playing for rich white folks and wearing your tuxedo. You wanna keep it clean on all levels and play well.
1: Here's the tuxedo jazz band with a song that perhaps carried a cautionary message to all those young jazz-mad debutantes, Careless Love. Original Tuxedo Jazz Band with Careless Love on Afropop Worldwide Hip Deep. Ned Sublett with you, sitting in the temporarily vacant chair of the mighty Georges Colonnais. William Ridgely and Oscar Celestan had a falling out, and the Tuxedo Jazz Band split off into two bands. One was the original Tuxedo Jazz Band, and the other was Celestan's original Tuxedo Jazz Band. And they both made a significant personnel change in their respective piano chairs. Bruce Rayburn.
2: They both hire women on piano. In other words, wearing tuxedos did a lot to sort of upgrade the visibility, the respectability, the legitimacy of these jazz bands, which had associations with vice and poverty, that uh, they, you know, were originally part of how they were perceived. But the inclusion of women as piano players did a lot too, particularly a young lady, from Bay St. Louis named Jeanette Salvant, who was very well trained on piano. She could read, but she could also improvise. And she was recruited for the band after 1925 and became a longtime member, eventually marrying the banjo player, Narvin Kimball. And so Jeanette's story uh, also tells us something different about how the idea that jazz could be respectable and acceptable to the white middle class occurs. They
6: came to my home and had me play I never shall forget, Alabama Bound. I had never seen orchestration before, and they were quite amazed uh, the way I played it. Although I had never seen orchestration, I'd only been playing sheet music. They took it from there, and they asked my mother, would she allow me to become a member of the band? My mother said I was just a child, I was just out of school, and uh, although she wanted me to go right ahead, she was very proud, and she. He promised her that he would take care of me, of which he did. He was very, very nice.
2: The introduction of women who by no stretch of the imagination could be labeled a prostitute or vice-ridden in any way, really dressed up these bands along with the tuxedos. And so what we see with the tuxedo jazz band is how black music from the bottom of society migrated in the market to become palatable to the entire market, including rich white people. Ridgely recruited a woman named Emma Barrett, who later on became a star at Preservation Hall. Sweet Emma was known as the bell girl. She always wore a Girl Scout beanie. That became one of her signatures, and uh, she also didn't trust banks, so she kept all the money she made in a sack, which she kept with her at all times. And she adorned her ankles with some bells, so she provided a little rhythm when she was playing solo piano. But she uh, replaced a man. Manuel Mineta had been the pianist with the original Tuxedo Jazz Orchestra and was on their first recordings and then later on the women take over.
1: Now here's Celestan's original Tuxedo Jazz Band with My Josephine. Original Tuxedo Jazz Band with My Josephine Ned Sublett with you Filling in for my Cameroonian compadre Georges Collinet on Afropop Worldwide Hip Deep Today we're checking out early music in New Orleans And now I want to go back Back, back to before the time Of jazz It was in 1884 that Bacat Batiste Organized the first formally constituted Mardi Gras Indian group that we know of The Creole Wild West The earliest recorded indication we have of what their music was like turns up in Jelly Roll Morton's Oral Histories with Alan Lomax on June 8th, 1938.
7: Now here's the way they would sing uh, when they would uh, be dancing. They'd form a ring and one would get in the center and he'd start his kind of an Indian dance and he'd be singing, throwing his head back and downward and stooping kind of over and bending his knees and doing a kind of a a uh, jug dance i'd call it and they would say to we back away no the whole bunch would answer back who time day to we back away who time day to we back away who time day see they would uh, that have a kind of a rhythm uh, with the with the heels like this to we back away who time day do it park over cum day? Do we park over cum day? Ah la kayo go, ah la kawe. Oh, do it park over cum day? Do we park over cum When they would say other things, they would they would stop for a minute and throw their head back and say, ah la kayo, ah la kawe.
1: I asked our guest, Bruce Rayburn, for his take on the Indians.
2: One of the reasons that the New Orleans environment can be claimed as exceptional or special, I think, is the existence of Congo Square, which is only a regulatory period of something that was a continuum that lasted much longer. But probably from the 1720s on, African-based music and dance in ring shouts is occurring in New Orleans. And the city attempted to regulate it between eighteen seventeen and about eighteen fifty six. And then of course it just filters back into the neighborhood. So if we want a contemporary example of that spirit tide, that thread that takes New Orleans music all the way back to the west coast of Africa, Mardi Gras Indians are one of the best examples of that. And they are a reification of something you can also find in the Gulf Caribbean, Central America not just the music they make but the way they present themselves what the ritual is all about the feathers and the beadwork and the ritual dancing and confrontation this is very african and you know the message we get from that is that Whereas African culture was, at least the the policy was, to expunge it from the rest of the South because of fear of slave rebellion. In New Orleans, they attempted to regulate it instead because they saw it as a cultural and social inevitability, which, in retrospect, it certainly proved to be. And, you know, the resiliency of these tribes, which are about overcoming adversity and celebrating a spirit of resistance to oppression, whatever kind of oppression you might imagine, Uh, that's still alive and well in the population of New Orleans. And, you know, it's fitting that if we talk about the the sort of prehistory of jazz, if we're going to have an end point of that discussion, it has to take us back to the streets.
1: And we're about to take it back to the streets. It took even longer to record an active Mardi Gras Indian group than it did a working brass band, until 1954 when Samuel Charters made the first field recording. Before we take off on it, though, you know, we've been listening to a lot of voices of long-dead New Orleanians today, bearing witness to how things used to be back before every moment of life was documented and webcast. I asked Lynn Abbott if he could sum up what he'd learned from all his years of contact with these oral history recordings, and I thought it was a beautiful answer.
4: I learned it, but uh, <laughs> first of all, we didn't talk to these guys enough, and we still haven't really learned to listen to them as well as we could. If you hang around this place after it closes and it gets nice and quiet in here, these people start talking to you in here. And they say, you don't have it quite
1: right yet.
2: You know, (laughs) get to work.
1: (laughs) Bruce Rayburn, any last words?
2: Well, I just want to encourage everybody to uh, continue to follow what's going on with New Orleans music because we've been talking about the history. We've been talking about the 1920s. Certainly didn't end there. And, you know, we want people to respect the 20s because it's been a blind spot. But we also want people to uh, buy into what's happening today in New Orleans music because whatever storm you're talking about, whether it's 1915 or 1965 or Katrina in 2005, nothing has been able to disrupt the continuity of New Orleans culture and New Orleans music as a music made by everyday people to live right in this environment. You know, I've always felt that if only three people had come back after Hurricane Katrina, two of them would have been musicians and one of them would have been a photographer.
1: Go down there and see it for yourself. Eat a poor boy. And if you go out on Mardi Gras day and you're lucky enough to witness Mardi Gras Indians in action on the street, it won't sound exactly like this. It might even be better, but it'll be recognizable because the culture is a continuity. And now, Live from nineteen
5: fifty-four. Oh yeah to a park away,
6: we went got the golden bell. Oh yeah. Oh. Two Lee way Lee park Lee away. Red white blue got the golden band. Oh, they coming and they're coming and a nobody running. Red white blue got the golden band. Oh, well, I'm from the seven ward and I'm having my fun. Red white blue got the golden band. Oh, well, I meet the people on a mighty Gras day. Red white blue got the golden band. Well, I don't give a damn what the police say. Red white blue got the golden band. Oh, the golden or
3: the golden Oh
6: the golden band. Oh,
1: the golden band. I'm going to channel the spirit of Georges Colonnais, who will speak through me. Funding
0: for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. And from PRX affiliate stations around the US. And thank you for supporting your public radio station.
1: You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. Production for this week's program by yours truly, Ned Sublet, appearing courtesy of the Institute of Post-Mambo Studies. And check out my new book, The Year Before the Flood. Big, big thanks to Bruce Rayburn and Lynn Abbott of the Hogan Jazz Archive. Our chief audio engineer is Michael Jones. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World
0: Music Productions. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast including radio programs and our Afropop Close-Up Podcast Series. And by the way, if you're in New York, New Jersey or Connecticut on Saturday, February 25th, join us for a special Afropop dance party in collaboration with World Music Institute's Let's Dance Series. We'll enjoy dancing to the Latin fusion band Afro-Dominicano and Puerto Rican Panamanian DJ Bambona. That's at New Blue in New York City. For more info, email us at info at Afropop.org. Banning Air and CC Smith edit our website. Our director of new media is Mukwai Wabeisi Yolwe. And I'm Georges you. <laughs>